Good morning. As you can see up here on the, on the platform, and then also uh, in the adult Sunday school classroom are a few more of the uh, um, projected sketches of the future building. Um, as I, I look at them, I've, I've realized something. Um, I'm going to have to up my game. Uh, <laughs> maybe we should get something not as nice, and then uh, we can lower expectations. We are in the last section of First Peter, and throughout, I've been trying to remind myself, as, as well as everybody else, uh, that this was written uh, with the idea of Christians in conflict with culture. And we are constantly reminded that we're in conflict with culture. From the beginning, Peter's taught the believer how to live in conflict with culture. I have a few statements that are, these are true statements, and, and we need to have them in mind uh, as we uh, continue studying First Peter. If you are in step with Christ, you will be out of step with the world. There's no way to do both. We need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. When you are out of step with the world, the world provides pressure to get you back in line. Living a righteous life in step with Christ shines light on our culture's wicked deeds. And that's why they don't like it. And understand this one, this is, this is very important. The wicked don't just want your acceptance. They want your applause. A former member of my youth group grew tired of hearing all the arguments about gay marriage. Remember when that was the issue? Right? And she just grew, grew tired of, of the consistency of, of that. She said her attitude was, let them have it if it stops all the whining. And I understood where she was coming from, but life experience has taught me that relenting to sin never satisfies the unrighteous appetite. The public discourse has gone from allowing gay marriage to allowing biological men into women's bathrooms uh, in schools and other public restrooms. Sin is never satisfied. Our culture opposes Christ, particularly his righteous standards. To be able to stand against the culture and stand for Christ, it's just not that we are against things. We are for Christ. I'd rather be for things than against things. But to be able to stand against the culture and stand for Christ, Peter instructs and encourages Christians with this letter. And we're going to do a little review. Peter starts with the believer's faith at the beginning of this letter. Basically, know your salvation. If you are going to stand with Christ in conflict with our culture, you have to know your salvation. You have to know it inside and out. You have to be confident in it. And you have to understand that our, we're saved from the penalty of sin. Right? We are being saved from the power of sin. And one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. We're not there yet. We're in that process. And we have to understand that, that there is that struggle between the old nature, before I was saved, uh, didn't have the Holy Spirit residing in me. All I had was the old sinful nature. Uh, and now, praise be to, to, to Christ, 
uh, he took my sin on the cross and gave me his righteousness, and, uh, and I was crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live. It is Christ that lives within me. But I still have this old nature that rears its ugly head. The believer has three enemies. The world, the devil, and ourselves. And out of the three, I think I'm my biggest problem. Maybe some people, I see a lot of like, yep, you agree, I'm my biggest problem. Thank you for that affirmation. We have to know our salvation and the future part of our salvation, being free from the very presence of sin. That'll be nice. Won't even be a temptation. We have to know holiness. It's tempting to say when we're in, in conflict with culture and persecution comes, who cares about holiness at this point? I'm, I'm trying to survive. My, I'm, you know, I'm being wounded on a daily basis, and it's easy to lash out. Holiness is commanded by God, and here's the best part, it's expressed in love. Commanded by God, expressed in love. And then the, we have to know, the believer has to know our identity. And here's the important truth with that. You are who God says you are, not what the world says you are. I'm not even who I say I am. I am who God says I am. And then we got to, what do we do when we're, we're in conflict with culture? We have to witness. We can't live in a bunker and, uh, and try to wait it out. We have to witness. And we witness to our culture by our willingness to submit. I wish there was another way. No? We witness to our culture in our willingness to submit. To submit, submit to governmental authorities. Submit in our workplace. Submit in our family. That is how we witness best, is in our submission. And then this last section we did was our, the believer's response. Honor Christ as Lord by giving a reason for the hope that you have because of the Lord. Seek God's will above your own. Live like Christ could return at any moment and live joyfully. That's how we're supposed to live. That is our response to being in conflict with our culture. Notice the absence of whining. It's not there. It's not there. We live in submission to Christ. We seek God's will. We live like Christ could come back, and we live joyfully. The next section that we're doing, and we're close to the end. If you're paying, paying attention, you might be worried. What are we going to do next? Don't worry. We'll, we'll have something. The Bible's big. I don't know if you noticed that. The Bible's pretty big, and so we'll move on to something else. But in this next section, we're dealing with the believer's church. The believer's church. In 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 2, it says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Times of persecution demand that God's people have adequate spiritual leadership. Peter starts out, and his, he gives, so we're, this morning we're going to do the sermon as pastoring the persecuted. 
pastoring the persecuted. Peter gives qualifications for his exhortation. He's about to give, he says, I'm going to exhort you on something, but he, he qualifies it first by saying as a fellow elder. A fellow elder. Peter could have played the apostle card. He could have said, I'm going to exhort you on something, and I'm exhorting you, not just as any old Peter. I'm exhorting you as an apostle, an official representative of God. But instead, he says, as a fellow elder. He emphasized his eldership and his fellow eldership. Why does it matter? Peter is speaking from experience, not just theory. He doesn't see himself at the head of the table, but in and amongst his fellow elders. His exhortation to the elders is an exhortation given to himself. He isn't asking the leaders of the church to do anything different than what Peter has done and was going to continue to do as an elder in the church. Peter was speaking from experience. I had a college professor that um, was determined to write a book on parenting because he, he looked around and he said, these people need help. And so he was going to write a book, started, started working on it, started outlining his book. Here was the problem. He didn't have any kids. Most experts on child raising don't have kids. He had his first one, and he said, maybe a book is too much. Maybe I should write a pamphlet. I, I think I could write a pamphlet on parenting. And then he had his second one. And he said, I'm not writing anything. This is, this is for somebody else. Peter is giving his exhortation uh, as, as someone who has the experience and the know-how to give this exhortation. He also says he's going to give this exhortation, not just as a fellow ed elder, but also as a witness of Christ's suffering. An area where Peter did have an advantage over his fellow elders is that Peter was a witness of Christ's suffering. Why does that matter? Well, Peter consistently used Christ as the example of how to suffer properly. And he was an eyewitness of how that happened. Not just an eyewitness watching what happened, but he got to, I guess it's not an eyewitness, it's an earwitness, hear exactly what Christ taught. So as an eyewitness to the ministry, which included the suffering of Christ, Peter saw all of that, and what he's relating to them is not relating that he heard it from a person who heard it from a person. He's saying, this is what I saw. Peter could say with absolute certainty, Jesus suffered, and he endured perfectly. Peter said these words on the day of Pentecost to the crowd gathered in the temple. In Acts 3.15, it says, as he's speaking to the crowd, he says, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. Peter witnessed the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Peter witnessed all of that, he had the confident hope of being a partaker in future glory. A partaker of future glory. Earlier in this book of 1 Peter, he wrote, 
In chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. When you share in the suffering, you share in the glory. Let me tell you what that's like. I was not a Saints fan. Instead, I had it just as bad being a Detroit Lions fan. Historically as bad as the Saints were. I came, what was it, 2004, correct? 2004, let me remind you what happened at the end of that season. It looked like the Saints were going to go to the playoffs and then they missed an extra point. Do you remember that? Yeah, and then all of a sudden, out. Long-suffering Saints fan, right? Long-suffering. When the Saints finally got good and won the Super Bowl, who had the right to enjoy it more? A Johnny-come-lately or someone who had been there from the beginning? Right? Somebody who had suffered, who looked at poor Archie Manning and said, I wish we had somebody for him to throw it to. I wish we had offensive linemen that could keep him upright. Suffered all through that. Now when they win, right, you get to share in the glory. I acted like I was a Saints fan, uh, but I didn't gone through the suffering. I think what I did is I took my suffering for uh, being a Lions fan and applied it to the Saints. I was living vicariously through the Saints. I think that's what happened. Partaker in future glory. Partnering with Christ in his suffering, you partner with Christ in his glory. Peter was a witness both of the suffering and glory. Peter saw the resurrected Jesus in his glorified body, but Peter also saw the glory of Christ before Jesus' death. In the Gospel accounts, we are told of Christ's transfiguration witnessed by Peter, James, and John. They got a glimpse of, uh, of what the glory of God looked like uh, uh, in Jesus Christ. Good news for you, believer. You will also be a witness in Christ in all of his glory. Peter tells the reader of the future glory as a reminder of how all of this will end for those that love the Lord, those that have been made righteous by Christ's suffering unto death. The end of the story is Jesus transfigured into his eternal glory with us as his fellow heirs. So Peter qualifies what his exhortation, what he's about to tell them to do on those three things, on being a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and a partaker in future glory. So what was Peter's exhortation to church elders? He says the elders are to shepherd and oversee the flock of God. To shepherd and oversee. He says, I exhort you. In verse 2, we get shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So, what is meant by elder? The word elder refers to the maturity of the officer. The maturity of the officer. The Apostle Paul would plant local churches on his journeys. He would appoint elders in those churches to establish formal positional oversight. Now, appointing elders is not the same thing as pointing out old people. Age helps but does not guarantee growth and maturity. Life experience can be a great teacher. 
this past year as a, a football coach, offensive line coach, I wouldn't get upset at a player that made a mistake. I think that's a foolish way to coach, is, is to get upset at people for making mistakes. How, how have you ever learned anything? By making mistakes. So I wouldn't get upset at a player for making a mistake unless it was the same mistake made previously. In frustration this year, I barked out at my offensive lineman, can we make a new mistake, please? I'm getting bored with the current mistakes. Can we find a new one? I use sarcasm quite a bit. Experience helps us move past rookie mistakes, but not always. Paul wrote to Timothy about the importance of appointing qualified elders in the church to serve and give oversight. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul tells Timothy, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Elder is a scripture-appointed position, and it is, it is a noble, honorable, and important task or position to hold. Wanting to be an elder is a good thing to desire to do. Not just anybody should do it. It is not a position that is handed out so everyone can have their turn. That's a bad approach. A church needs to be selective in who fills this position. Paul gives a descriptive portrait of the type of person qualified to serve as an elder. He goes on in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, says, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the, into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. That's the portrait of the type of person that Paul says to Timothy, when you're appointing elders, this is who it is. This is, this is what you're looking for. And it's something that all of us should strive to grow in. Peter's charge, or his exhortation, is for the elders to shepherd God's flock. Peter is giving this charge to the elders in northern Turkey, and it is the same exhortation that was given to him. After Jesus had risen from the dead and had not yet ascended into heaven, uh, he called Peter, uh, had the uh, disciples come over for breakfast, uh, and he called Peter over. And uh, this is interesting. How many times did Peter deny Christ? Three times. Jesus says to Peter three times, Feed my sheep. That's no accident. That was Christ restoring Peter. But he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. The position of elder comes with responsibilities, and it is motivated by a love for God. Yes, elder does give the impression of having reached a certain 
age milestone. A certain age milestone. But not everybody should be appointed as an elder. If someone, they, you can take any one of these qualifications and say they're great in this. They, they, they managed they managed very well. They, uh, they've shown leadership capability. They, uh, everything they touch turns, turns to gold. If they don't love the Lord, they're not qualified regardless of how successful people are in life. An elder must love the Lord, and they're motivated by their love of God. What does it mean to shepherd the flock? The word pastor means to shepherd. And shepherds make sure the flock is fed. A pastor makes sure the people in a local church are fed with the word of God. <clears throat> in the process of interviewing for the pastor position at Mandeville Bible Church, the elder board said they were looking for a pastor that would spend the majority of his time studying the Bible and teaching people the word of God. That was music to my ears. A shepherd does more than feed the sheep, however. A shepherd cares for the flock, leads the flock, guides the flock, and protects the flock. An elder in a local church spiritually does the same thing. In shepherding, overseeing or acting as a bishop, that's cut off in the word that's translated to bishop the flock, uh, is, is necessary. In some church traditions, a bishop is a position that ranks above an elder in the hierarchy of church government. And that's fine. There's, I think there's, there's some leeway as to how churches are, are structured. Um, but understand that it is not commanded or demonstrated in Scripture that a bishop is a separate office from elder. Scripturally, it's the same office. It's just, it's the same, just stressed a little different in, in, in the actions uh, of, of what the elder is doing. An elder refers to the maturity of the office where the word bishop speaks to the responsibility of the office. Elders, bishops, pastors, overseers are synonymous. An important task for an elder in a church is to provide oversight, looking after each other. Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, and he said, And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. What's interesting here is that what's being spoken of is not just the crowd, but the individual. As we grow as a church family, we need to keep it like a family. A church that is very large needs to pay special attention to the individual and not just the group. And that is a very difficult task to do. So how should elders shepherd and, uh, and oversee the flock? So how should elders shepherd and oversee the flock? Well, we're given the first one. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not by compulsion, but willingly. How many of you have ever been voluntold to do something? Right? Yeah. Uh, a buddy of mine, he got into coaching because he had a young son, and they asked for volunteers. And he said it's not so much that he took a step forward, but everybody else took a step back. And there he was. And they said, well, I guess it's you. We don't want uh, an, people to serve as an elder in the church because they got their arm twisted. That's a, a, a bad way 
to fill the position of elder, not by compulsion, but willingly. There are practical reasons for not arm-twisting people into eldership. There are usually pretty good reasons people have for not serving as an elder. If somebody is asked and they're not able to, uh, being an elder or a deacon takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time. Uh, when, when church is over, when Sunday school is done, I am not the last one to leave. I don't think there's been a Sunday where I have been the last one to leave. There are usually a couple of gentlemen who are walking around the church putting everything into place. They do it unseen. They serve. And it takes time to do it. It takes time to do it. Basically, the Baptists get to the restaurant first before our deacons. <laughs> because they're here doing the task of serving. Typically, at Mandeville Bible, we meet for a board meeting once a month as elders. But in between that meeting, there are emails, text messages, and phone calls that occur regularly. If an elder has a family at home, they will miss family activities when they serve as an elder. After resigning my previous pastoral position, uh, the board at the church asked if I would like to join them as on the board. As before, it was as a pastor, but they just wanted me to, to come back onto the church board as a layman. I was starting a new career as a teacher and did not have the time or the energy or the emotional resources necessary to serve at that time. It would have been detrimental to me and the church to have my arm twisted into that position. If a person is arm twisted into serving as an elder, they can feel resentment toward the church and the position. And if a person is arm twisted into serving as elder, there'll be a great temptation to do the bare minimum to get by. How well will the church function with elders or deacons or any volunteer that feels resentment toward the church? Overseeing the church body is a demanding endeavor. If you've ever been in authority, and parents, as parents, you've been an authority or continue to be an authority. That's us. And you have had to make a decision that you knew would not go over well, that would upset the people that you were tasked to oversee and care for. How well did you sleep at night? Right? Probably not well. Here at Mandeville, I'm still new. I like to tell people that I still have that new pastor smell about me. But I know that there will come a time where hard decisions will have to be made and you will ski. I'm not a nervous eater. Some people are nervous eaters. I tend to starve myself when, when, I'm, um, when difficult things are happening, when my mind is taken. Uh, you know, I, I don't intentionally fast. That's just kind of what happens naturally. I don't, I don't eat when I'm, when I'm, when I'm uh, chewing on things mentally. Uh, I tend to starve myself. As you can see, things are going pretty well for me right now. <laughs> but like I said, I'm still new. And there's going to come a time when decisions will have to be made that I know won't be popular or will hurt feelings or there's just, there'll be opposition to it. And you'll see a skinnier version of me. That's going to happen. Imagine an elder that was pressured into filling a position with that amount of intensity. Will you make the hard decision, or will you say, 
I never wanted to do this anyway, whatever. Is that the type of leadership that the church benefits from? Absolutely not. But that tends to happen when we, when we twist arms to get people to fill positions as an elder, deacon, uh, Sunday school teacher, whatever it is. Uh, sometimes a very qualified person is simply not able to serve as an elder. The church needs to respect that decision and not force it or guilt it or arm twist that person. Church leadership should be entered into prayerfully and willingly as God desires. How should an elder oversee the flock? Not by compulsion, but willingly. And also, not by greediness, but eagerly. Some people desire to serve in leadership roles for selfish reasons. Isn't it amazing when we send congressmen, congresswomen to Washington, and they had a typical job that didn't make the millionaires, and they, they come back with three mansions? Isn't that amazing? There are some politicians who have made millions by claiming how poor they are. That's, that's, that's incredible. That's incredible. We can't have that in a church. We can't have people enter a leadership role for selfish reasons. And money is a big factor for some. Others desire admiration. Some get into church leadership because they like being in charge. They like having authority over others. The eagerness that is supposed to describe an elder is an eagerness to serve others, not to have others serve them. I was in a small town where a local pastor would walk into the town cafe like he was a big shot. He liked being known. It wasn't about others. It was prestigious for him. There have always been bad shepherds. The prophet Ezekiel proclaims a message God gave to the greedy shepherds of Israel. It says, Lord said to Ezekiel, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds, the leaders of Israel. Give them this message from the sovereign Lord. Here's the message. What sorrow awaits you shepherds who feed yourselves instead of your flocks? Shouldn't shepherds feed their sheep? You drink the milk, wear the wool, butcher the best animals, but you let your flocks starve. False teachers are motivated by money. An elder or pastor, if they are motivated by greed, will watch those that they are supposed to care for be ruined if it benefits their wallet. They will tell their flock that Jesus wants them to buy him a new plane because the old one was too small. If you don't have the right private jet, Ministry can be too difficult. Elders are to serve with eagerness for the benefit of others. In 1 Peter 5.3, it says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And by the way, your, your bulletin notes, they don't quite match up with, with the PowerPoint slides because I just didn't like the grammar. And I thought about keeping it, so it was, then I thought, no, I, I'd, rather, I'd rather have good grammar than match the uh, bulletin. So if you're like a little confused by that, I, I'm letting you off the hook. I changed it. I reserved the, the right to do so because I am domineering over the flock. Uh, there was a television show that had a quote about one character talking about another character. And the quote was, this is the smallest amount of power I've ever seen 
go to someone's head. Not domineering, but by example. My dad told me about his days in the National Guard. They were turning in their weapons with uh, instructions on making sure their firearms were cleaned, oiled, and in great condition. And they had a certain amount of time open to them to turn in their guns. It was like turn it in from this time to this time. Uh, One of the guardsmen got to work cleaning his gun. He made that his first task. He did more than an adequate job, but he returned... uh, he returned with the, uh, the instruction that it wasn't good enough and he needed to do better. My dad figured out quickly that it wasn't the cleanliness of the gun that was the issue, but it was the power trip by the sergeant who was in charge of collecting the weapons. My dad figured out that if he waited until the end of the day, the sergeant would be in a hurry to leave and would accept the weapon without issue. So that's what he did. He said his gun that was accepted wasn't any cleaner than the guy who went first. The difference was the power trip of the sergeant collecting. That's what we mean by domineering. He says, don't do that. In Mark 10, 42, it says, Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Elders in a church have responsibilities and authority. They must be careful to not fall into power trips. Many of us have had bosses or supervisors who wanted to make sure we understood they were in charge. A church shouldn't function that way. Biblical leadership does not drive the herd with a crack of a whip and loud shouting, but instead leads by example. Paul wrote to Titus, and he said to Titus, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity. That is how elders are to shepherd and oversee the flock. By example. The question remains, is it worth it? Because being an elder, serving in the church, elder, deacon, whatever service is provided, is it worth it? Being an elder has its challenges, but anything worthwhile has its challenges. Why do it? It says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This verse reminds me of a couple of things. One, there is a shepherd greater than me. The shepherd doesn't work for the sheep. I work for the chief shepherd, and the sheep belong to him, and he will know if I tended them for my temporary benefit or if I tended them for his eternal glory. And we're also told that the reward is an unfading crown of glory. Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians, and he wrote, All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. Every two years, on a rotating basis, the Summer and Winter Olympic Games are held. 
The Summer Olympics are being held in Paris in 2024. I'm going to tell you how it's going to go. The broadcast will cover some backstory of a Chinese gymnast who was chosen to enter the Chinese Olympic training program as a three-year-old. Maybe four, if they're a late bloomer. And you'll hear how this young child left home to train for her Olympic dream, which as a three-year-old is amazing that she has an Olympic dream. Wouldn't you agree? She must have been born with it because the child hasn't been alive long, has been alive long enough to have seen the Olympic Games. But the broadcast will inform you about the rigorous training and the sacrifice of only seeing her parents twice a year for the past 12 years. This young child will compete in the Games and wait to see the score that guarantees them Olympic gold. The score comes up, and they win the competition. And then the announcer will say, all of those years away from home, the physically demanding training, the emotional toll, was all worth it. And the other talking head will say, one word, immortality. Nope. Wrong in both accounts. Wrong in both accounts. It wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. It's better to be with your mom and dad. Isn't, isn't that a crazy statement? <laughs> They'll know it was worth it. No, it wasn't worth it. How could, how could it be worth it? And secondly, immortality will not be achieved. Now want to know how I know that? Do you know who won the Olympic gold 12 years ago? Immortality? We're barely past a decade. And we don't know. One day that medal will wind up in a box in storage unit or hawked at a pawn shop. The mental, emotional, and physical scars, those will remain. Jesus promises an unfading crown of glory to those that serve the body of Christ by investing themselves into Christ's purpose for them. Shepherd the flock, oversee the church, lead by example, and you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Heavenly Father, help those that serve in the church to do it the way that you would have them that uh, the decisions that are made will be made because they love you and they love your son. Father, help, help us as a church to, to, develop, uh, to develop men through your word and through a dependence on the Holy Spirit that can serve as elders and deacons, as, as, as servants, as, as leaders, as overseers, uh, so that the church will function properly because we're in a culture that is against you and therefore against us. Father, in this, in this culture where it seems very likely that persecution will not just be a thing that happens in other countries but will grow here as well, uh, that we will depend on you and your word and will recognize that you have given us a local body to encourage and to support one another so that we will please you with our life and that you will be glorified. And Father, we look forward to the day when we'll receive our reward, the unfading crown of glory, that it is eternal, and that we will rejoice when all of our days will spent 
with you, um, pleasing you, worshiping you, and being fully content in doing so. We just thank you that you made a way of salvation through Jesus Christ and no other, and that by simple faith, by trust, we can accept his sacrifice as a payment for our sin when he died on the cross, and that we can rejoice that he rose again so that we have the certain hope of our own resurrection because your son rose first, proving that death had been defeated. We thank you that we have the promise of victory. In Jesus' name, amen.